Hello and welcome. This is JHE Ministries Bible Study. I'm Jeffrey, minister and chaplain with JHE Ministries, and I'm glad to have you listening. We've started a new book of the Bible in our study of the Bible, which is the book of Luke. This is one of the four Gospels written by Luke, and it's a very interesting book, and it's packed with lots of gold nuggets. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the first chapter of Luke, verse 3, and let's get started. Now, last time we got through the first two verses of the first chapter of Luke, and in these verses, Luke is given a written account to Theopolis of his findings about the life of Jesus. So picking up with verse 3, and I'll read a few verses, and then we'll go back and visit it with them. Verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theopolis, that you may know the certainty of these things in which you were instructed. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praising outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now let's stop there for a minute, a minute and let's back up to verse 3. In verse 3, Luke gives a brief statement of his motivation and method he uses. Luke describes his own work of investigation and writing. He used a careful scientific investigation in the course of events in our Savior's life. We cannot determine from this preface alone whether Luke is referring to a chronological or to a, them a thematic order. But Luke wrote an orderly account. Like I say, it's not necessarily a chronological order. But Luke plans to start from the beginning of Jesus' ministry and to record his research accurately and in an orderly manner. Now Luke wrote his account to Theopolis to give a written account to confirm the trustworthiness of all that was taught concerning the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. The identity of Theopolis is unknown to us. He was probably a Roman official of high rank, which would be indicated by the title, Most Excellent. 
because the title Most Excellent back then did suggest a person of some distinction. Theopolis' name means Lord of God, but as, as who he was, we don't know. He may have been one of Luke's converts back in Philippi or Antioch. It may be possible he may have been Luke's literary publisher, uh, which took after the custom of the times. During those times, it was often done by a, a person that whom the book was dedicated to that they would bear the expense of publication by having copies made and for many of the churches. So leading into verse 4, though it's not clear whether Theopolis was a believer, he obviously had some instructions in the faith. He had learned both the words and the deeds of Jesus uh, instructed or taught in this verse may refer to formal teaching, but not necessarily. Uh, for some reason, Theopolis needed assurance as to the truth of the things taught to him. Possibly he was troubled by denials of the resurrection and other historical foundations of the faith that developed Gnostic speculation that was challenging. Gnostic is related to knowledge, especially mystical knowledge, that was contrary to Christian faith and beliefs. Now we begin to get into the birth and the childhood narratives. The anticipation of two births, one of John the Baptist and the other, of course, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Now, Luke is going to connect the Old Testament and the New Testament periods. He's going to show the Old Testament predictions that stand behind the events that he's about to describe. Now, by doing this, he uses a pattern that takes us back and forth between John the Baptist and Jesus. Luke clearly identifies John as a successor to the Old Testament prophets. Luke links John and Jesus. The structure of this section will be one, the announcement of John's coming birth. Two, the announcement of Jesus's coming birth. Three, Elizabeth's blessing of Mary. Four, uh, Mary's praise to God. Fifth will be John's birth praised by his father, Zechariah. And then lastly, Jesus' birth praised by angels in heaven and by saints in the temple. The appearance of angels is appropriate for an account that teaches that God has acted decisively in the history of his people to accomplish salvation. The theme of joy finds expression not only in the songs, but also in the tone of the whole passage. The gospel is always good news of great joy. At the same time, the passage realistically includes a reminder both of the pain of sin and also of the cost of our deliverance. So now in verses 5 and 6, we'll take a look at these two together. As it's already been said by me, the style of this section is different from the classical style of verses 1 through 4 that we read. Likewise, the method of dating differs from that used that we will see later in chapter 3, where Luke is interested in establishing a more precise point of historical reference. Uh, 
In this verse, his only concern is to locate the events in the reign of Herod, who was king of Judea from the periods of 37 to 34 BC. Luke is now going to begin by introducing John the Baptist's parents. Now, Luke emphasizes the Jewish roots of Christianity by, by mentioning that not only was Zechariah, uh, which incidentally his name means the Lord remembers, a priest, but his wife had also been born into the priestly line. They are a truly pious couple, and they are wholly devoted to God. Their childlessness clearly did not imply any sin. Now, I want to stop and take a side note here. And throughout the book of Luke, I'll be taking many of these side notes. I enjoy giving other information, which helps us to understand the text before us. And so I want to take a moment here. I want to give the side note, if you will, about the announcement to Zechariah, the event on which Old Testament prophecy converged is at hand, the arrival of the Messiah. We will get into more of the announcement and the story of the Messiah later on, but Isaiah tells us of a voice of one calling in the wilderness or desert that will prepare the way for the Lord. And in Malachi, which is the final book of the Old Testament prophecies, it says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. It was an ancient near custom that a royal representative was sent ahead to prepare the way for a visiting king. Now here we have an angel notify Zechariah, the saintly old priest, that his child, yet to be born of his barren wife, who is Elizabeth, is the one to whom the prophecies point to. And later on in the book of Luke, we will see how Jesus validated that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of the Old Testament Testament prophecies about the messenger who would prepare the people, bringing them to repentance before the Lord's coming. And later we will also see how Jesus also tells us that John is the Elijah who was to come, referring back to Malachi's prophecy that Elijah would reappear before the day of the Lord. The people remembered this prophecy and even asked John the Baptist whether he was Elijah. But he told them that he was not Elijah, but it was understood he was ministering in the spirit and the power of Elijah, the prophet. So getting back to our text here in verse 7, we learn that to be childish, childless back in ancient times, it brought sorrow and often shame in those biblical times. At her advanced age, Elizabeth, her, her name means oath of God, could no longer entertain the hope that each Jewish woman had to be the mother of the Messiah. While her situation and the subsequent intervention of God had its precedence in the Old Testament, such as Sarah and Hannah, no other woman had such, uh, had such a total reversal in fortune as to bear the forerunner of the Messiah like Elizabeth. So looking at verses 8 and 9, the division, the word division, was one of the 24 groups of priests that were divided by families or divided by families and structured after the pattern that we found in 1 Chronicles chapter 23 and 24. Now, the exile 
had interrupted the original lines of descent. So the divisions were regrouped, most of them corresponding to the original in name only. So each of the 24 divisions, they served in the temple for one week, twice a year, as well as the major festivals. Now, each shift, if you will, of the priest serving was called to serve for two years, from Sabbath to Sabbath. An individual priest, however, could offer the incense at the daily sacrifice only once in his lifetime, if at all, since there were so many priests. Therefore, this was the climatic moment of Zechariah's priestly career, perhaps the most dramatic moment possible for this event that's going to be described, or that was described to have occurred. God was breaking into the ancient routine of Jewish ritual with the word of his decisive saving act. So in verse 10, mention of the worshipers, uh, which were the whole multitude of people praying outside. This not only heightens the suspense, but prepares the reader for the upcoming verses of 21 and 22, which we'll get to later on. They were probably pious Jews who loved to be near the temple when these sacrifices were being offered, which gets us into verses 11 and 12. The suddenness of the appearance of the angel in the holy place accords with other supernatural events in the book of Luke. Only a heavenly being had the right to appear in the place with the priest. Zachariah's startled and fearful reaction is not only a natural reaction to such an appearance, but it is also consistent with what the Gospels say about the response of the disciples and others to the presence of the supernatural. In verse 13, this is the first indication of prayer on the part of Zechariah. The specific petition probably refers to both his lifelong prayer for a child, probably a son, and his just offered prayer in the temple for the Masonic redemption of Israel. Actually, the birth of his child was bound up with redemption in a way far beyond anything Zechariah expected. That the prayer included a petition for a son is sustained by the further description of the child beginning with his name John, which means the Lord, Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is the Hebrew word for Jesus. His name being, uh, his being named before his birth stresses God's sovereignty in choosing him to be his servant. So verses 14 and 15 give description of the child's mission. Um, and has a counterpart in Gabriel's words to Mary that we will see in later verses. This part of the literary device that connects and compares the roles of both Jesus and John. The joy, so characteristic of the day of God's salvation, and so prominent in Luke, came first to the parents of the forerunner, then spread to many others. But note the contrast between the promised joy and Zechariah's present fear from verse 12. The child will be great, which is a word also used to Jesus in the verses coming or in the verse coming up in verse 32, 
as the prophetic forerunner of the Messiah in verse 15. Later, some would find it hard to relinquish their devotion to John to follow Jesus. They would need to realize that while both were great, Jesus was greater. In the sight of the Lord indicates divine choice and approval. It is difficult to identify John with a particular religious group simply by this description. Abstinence from wine suggests the Nazarite vow that we read about in the book of Numbers, but no mention is made of John's hair. Nazarites were to let their hair grow. Now, priests on duty were expected to abstain from strong drink. This may identify John as a priestly figure calling the people to repentance. The Spirit's control of a person is contrasted with the control wine can have on a person. In the life of Jesus, the Spirit's ministry will be even more prominent than even in John's life. That is all the time we have for today, but next time we will continue our study with the book of Luke. In the meantime, God bless each and every one of you, and keep living Christian strong.